Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn in them with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. Luke's Gospel, chapter 1. If you don't have your Bible with you, you can look in the pew back in front of you. There are Bibles there. Luke, chapter 1. We will be starting in verse 26, and I'll read through verse 38. Verse 26 through 38. Hear then, church, the word of God. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David." And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said, answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And this is the word of God. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we praise you and we thank you for your word and for the message of Advent that has come to us through it, the message of the birth of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for all that comes with celebrating his birth, knowing full well all the rest of the year that Christ has come. We do not set that aside, however, This time of year, we celebrate specifically what is special, what is wonderful about you coming into our world through the person of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the many gifts that you've given us as we celebrate Christmas. Gifts are on our minds this this time of the year. And we look at our lives, Lord, and we uh, can barely count the amount of gifts that you have given to each and every one of us. Lord, we are blessed beyond measure. I think specifically this week um, for our church and for the gift of new life that you've given to David and Brooke Gonzalez, Lord, we praise you, we thank you for the wonderful gift of children, another child that you've given to them, another child that you have blessed our church with. Lord, we think of the gift of health that many of us are able to be here and to celebrate and worship worship you and celebrate the birth of your son. All of these things, Lord, we attribute to your hand. 
There's nothing that we have that we were not given by you. Nothing good that we own. Nothing good that we exhibit, but that has come by your hand. So we recognize that this morning, Lord. And as we turn to your word, we ask that you would cause it to bear fruit in our lives. May we hear it. May we believe all that it teaches. And may it transform us to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name and for his sake. Amen. So we're continuing in our Advent series this morning in the Gospel of Luke. Last week we focused on, our focus was Mary and specifically her role in the Christmas story. And we've come to this same passage because this morning we're going to focus not so much on Mary and her role, but on the angel, what the angel Gabriel says to Mary, specifically about this child that she was going to bear. What, what the angel says to Mary about the Lord Jesus Christ. So first, a miraculous conception. Then we're going to look at the earthly lineage and destiny of this child, of the Christ child, and then finally Mary's response and our response as well. So look with me at verse 31 again. The angel says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? Well, Mary may not have understood all of what it meant that her son would be called the son of the Most High. And though that's probably the part that stands out to us when we read this, uh, this account from Luke of the Christmas story, Mary's primary concern was the practical impossibility of it all. The practical impossibility of her having a son at all, seeing as how she had never been with a man. So one can understand then why Mary's initial response to the angel is, how is this possible? I mean, maybe the angel got the wrong house. Did angels ever make mistakes like that? Did the angel, you know, in Mary's mind, did the angel know that she was a virgin? So before she can even process what the angel says about who this child will be, she's stuck on the question, how is it possible for her to have a child, let alone that this child would be king? We might say the more important question was related to who this child would be, but in that moment, Mary's question is how this child will be. So verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel gives a surprising answer. It wasn't, oh, I'm sorry, Mary, is there another Mary that lives somewhere on this block? Maybe I got the wrong house. Nor was it, oh no, Mary, Listen, you've got the wrong impression. I'm not talking about you having a child now. This isn't all going to happen until you and Joseph actually get married and then consummate your marriage. That's not what the angel says. Look at verse 35. The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. So the answer that Gabriel gives to Mary actually reveals both how she is going to conceive a child as a virgin 
and who this child will be because those two things are connected. This would be a miraculous conception, a work of the Holy Spirit, not a work of man. Why? Well, because the child would not be the offspring of a man, but rather the Son of God come in flesh. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. The eternal and the divine Son of God coming into our world as an infant. And it came about in the most peculiar of ways. As in the very beginning, all the way back in Genesis chapter 1, when the Spirit of God was said to have hovered over the void and brought order and life into that void, so too now by the power of God, the Spirit would come upon Mary and bring about life in the empty womb of this young woman. For Jesus Christ could not truly be called holy, the Son of God, if he were simply the natural-born son of Mary and Joseph. He indeed had an earthly mother, but no earthly father. So this is the Christmas story, and, and you can have all the various parts to it, all the characters in the story, but if you miss this part, then all the rest of the parts of Christmas lose their meaning. Because Christmas isn't just a feel-good story about the birth of a, a great prophet or an inspirational teacher to this unexpecting young lady who in this moment lied to an angel about her virginity. No, this was the birth of the one who is the son of the Most High, holy, the son of God. He's the eternal son who entered our world by being conceived of the spirit in the womb of Mary as a precious human life in its initial embryonic stage, fully human, yet dependent upon his mother for nurture and the nourishment that her body would provide. He came into our world by this great condescension, entering in by the most humblest of fashions. And considering who he is, it follows then that his conception could not be one of natural means, but that it was and it had to be a miraculous conception brought about by the powerful hand of God. Now I want to go back and look at what else the angel tells us about the identity of this child. We've just talked about the divine identity, the heavenly origins of Mary's child. And though that might be hard for some to believe, Christians believe it. The Christian faith is established upon the incarnation of the Son, the belief that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. And I can say, not to cause any offense or anything, but if you don't believe in the, uh, in the virgin birth, if you don't believe that Jesus was both truly God and truly man, then you're not truly a Christian. That is what Christians have believed throughout the centuries. That is at the heart of our faith. But there's another aspect to his identity that we must understand and believe as well. Look at verse 32 with me. This is the aspect of his earthly lineage and destiny. The angel said he will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now we hear that phrase, son of the most high, and our thoughts likely go to what we've just been talking about. The divine nature of Christ, we hear 
son of God, and we think deity. And in light of what the Gospels teach about Jesus Christ, it's right that we think that. But for Mary, something else would have likely come to her mind when she heard those words. Because right after that, Gabriel says, he goes on to say, after he speaks of her child as a son of the Most High, he goes on to say that God will give to him the throne of his father, David. King David was the one to whom God had said in Psalm 2, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So in that sense, we see this throughout the Old Testament, in that sense to be the son of the Most High was to be the appointed royal king whose reign on earth represented God's kingdom and God's reign. And when you read Psalm 2 and you read the other Psalms that are like it, it's evident that they, even though they speak in the immediate term of David, King David, they actually point to another king who would, would, would actually exceed David in honor and glory. And according to God's covenant with David, this great king would be one of his own descendants. And so here in our story, in Gabriel's announcement to Mary, the story of the Old Testament and of God's covenant, what we're to see is it's finally coming to pass. Gabriel says to Mary that this child would be called the son of the Most High and that God would give to him the throne of his father David and that he would reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom, he says, there would be no end. Now, for us to rightly understand this king in the full measure of his kingdom, we need to look at some of those Old Testament passages that foretell of its coming. First of all, I already mentioned the announcement that Jesus Christ would be given the throne of his father David. That was an announcement, was an, that was a fulfillment of the promise that God had given to King David. So listen to the words that God spoke to David through his prophet Nathan in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, or after you, yep, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So this promise that God had given to David was not just a secret between God and David. It was made known to God's people Israel. And the promise did not become void with Solomon's death or the death of Solomon's son. Because of this promise, Israel, God's people, continued to look ahead to the one God would raise. He would raise up from the lineage of David who would be a great king like David except this king would have a kingdom that would know no end. It would have no bounds and it would last forever, we could say. So for example, we have Psalm 89. And in Psalm 89, the psalmist is remembering God's promise and he's asking God to remember his promise to David. He reminds God of of his promise because he is longing for, he's looking for this king to come. He wants God to remember it And he calls out to God in hopes that God would make good on his promise and that this king and his his reign would come soon and deliver his people. And so he says in Psalm 89, "You, you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I've sworn to David, my servant, I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. 
Now, for the studious reader of the Old Testament, this promise continues to show up in the Old Testament, and the revelation about this king and his kingdom continues to develop. One of the well-known prophecies that we often read at Christmas time, because it tells of the birth of Christ, comes from Isaiah chapter 9. And, And in this prophecy, we see again more revelation about this son of David who would come and who would have a kingdom that would know no end. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here we have the promise of this coming king who will sit again on the throne of David. And again, we're told it will be an everlasting kingdom. Of his government, there will be no end. This king will come to establish peace and justice and righteousness. And where will he establish peace, justice, and righteousness? Where will that be? Not in heaven. That's already the case in heaven. But this promise is speaking of him reigning in justice, in in justice, peace, and righteousness here on this earth. And notice, too, that though he will be a man, he will that he will be a child born to us, though that's the case, he will at the same time be called Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. That means this king who will be born to us, though he himself will be a man, he will at the same time be given names that can only rightly be attributed to the Creator God. Now stay with me because there's more. In the book of Daniel, we're told the story of God's servant, Daniel, who was taken into captivity by the king of Babylon. And during his captivity, God put Daniel in the place of interpreting the king's dreams and signs that God had given to him. Now, one of those we find in Daniel chapter 2, where Nebuchadnezzar, God gives Nebuchadnezzar a dream about a towering and terrifying image figure. The head of the image was gold, The chest and arms were silver, the thigh was bronze, the legs and iron, and the feet were partly iron and partly clay. And he said, as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image at its feet and broke them to pieces. And then the whole image crumbles and becomes like chaff in the summer's breeze. And God gave to Daniel the meaning of this dream, who then told the meaning of the dream to Nebuchadnezzar. The image, Daniel said, represented certain great kingdoms of the earth. They were kingdoms that had attempted to, and in some sense accomplished what we would call world domination. Kingdoms like Assyria and Babylon and Persia. They were listed from top to bottom in the image, from the greatest of these kingdoms all the way to the least of the kingdoms. And after Daniel explains these kingdoms to the king, he comes to the interpretation of the stone that topples all of those kingdoms. And listen to the interpretation. Verse 44. Verse 44. 
In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So what happens when the kingdoms that, or when the the one kingdom that God sets up topples all the other kingdoms of this earth? What happens with that one kingdom stone that was not cut out by human hands. Verse 35, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and it filled the earth. Now one more Old Testament passage and this one comes from Daniel as well. This is a vision that God gives to Daniel and it too is about this king and his kingdom. Daniel Daniel 7 verse 13. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed." Now, if you read very carefully, you'll notice, in this case, we're being told one who is like a son of man, which, by the way, was Jesus' favorite designation of himself. And many New Testament scholars say he chose that designation because it was an allusion to this passage here. So we're told in this passage there's one like a son of man, not coming down from heaven, but rather coming on the clouds of heaven, where? To the Ancient of Days. And upon his arrival, he is given dominion over all the earth, a kingdom including the allegiance of peoples and nations, all the nations, and his rule will not pass away or be destroyed. Now, contrary to how some Christians have interpreted this passage, this prophecy is not about the second coming of Christ. Rather, it is about the ascension of Christ into heaven after his resurrection. He is coming to the Ancient of Days, you see. But more to the point, again, this prophecy tells us about this king and the extent of his kingdom. It is an everlasting kingdom, and it will be established on this earth. All peoples, all nations, all languages will serve this king forever. So let me sum all this up for us. According to the Old Testament prophecies and promises to God's people about this king, there was a king coming to this world who was in the earthly lineage of David. And even though he was in the earthly lineage of David, he was of heavenly origin. He would be one who would be called mighty God, prince of peace, everlasting father. And he will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him a kingdom that will last forever. There is a kingdom coming to this world that is of heavenly quality and power that will prevail over all the kingdoms of men. And so the destiny of this world is bound up in the destiny of this king 
whose kingdom will one day rule the nations and endure for all time. And then comes the announcement of Gabriel to Mary. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and you will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now how does all this, maybe you're at this point you're thinking, how does, how does, what does all this matter? How does this shape the way you and I understand the Christmas story? Well, for one, it helps us to see the birth of Christ not just as a personal or religiously significant event, but rather a cosmically and universally significant event. You see, the story and the destiny of our entire world, of our cosmos, is wrapped up in the manger, in the Christmas story. And as Christians, we need a full picture of this. We don't really get Christmas unless we have some grasp on what God's full intention was in sending his son. It wasn't simply to secure an individual heavenly retirement plan for the souls of those who would believe on him, taking us up to heaven when we die so that we might escape this sin-cursed world with fallen humanity driving this sin-cursed world straight to hell. No, the good news of Christmas is that the child born in Bethlehem is the savior king of the world who has come to lift the curse, save his people from sin, death, and judgment, and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven so that one day this earth will be filled with justice, peace, and righteousness of this king. So the end game is not our escape from the material world which has become corrupt and enslaved to sin and Satan, but actually... Christ's victory over the works of the devil, over all of his enemies, the redemption of all of his people, and in the final analysis, in the making of all things new, so that this earth, the very earth that you and I live on, will one day be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now, the New Testament teaches that the means by which Christ accomplishes all of this is his willing and sacrificial death on the cross and glorious resurrection from the grave. His death and resurrection secured his victory. It secured our full salvation and his glorious dominion over all of this world. And though we live in the in-between, though our full salvation, though the transformation of this world still lies ahead of us, though we do not see at this time all things put in subjection to the Son, Though this world seems to us surely bound and bent for hell, God's word assures us that Christ will be the savior and the victor in the end. Why? Because he comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found and he will make the nations prove the wonders of his righteousness, the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. So what should we, how should we respond to this? What's our response? What should it look like? Well, it should look like Mary's response. Look at Mary's response to the angel's announcement. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary's response to the Christmas announcement, the announcement that to her a child will be born who we call the son of the most high 
who would sit on the throne of his father David, whose kingdom would, have, would know no end, would, that would last forever, her response was, behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And so that is the response God is looking for from every one of us. Indeed, the response he's looking for from the whole world to the announcement of the coming of his Christ and his kingdom, we're to respond, let it be to us according to your word. You see, in that moment, Mary had to take God's message by faith. Would she really become pregnant as a virgin? Would she really give birth to a boy who would fulfill the promises of God to David, who would establish a kingdom that has no end? Martin Luther once said of Mary, she might have doubted, but she shut her eyes and trusted in God, who could bring all things to pass, even though common sense were against it. This is what the Christmas announcement required from her, and it's what it requires from us. Not judging our situation, the state of our world, and where we're headed by our feeble common sense and perspective, but trusting in God and believing his promises that they will surely come to pass. You see, the Christmas story beckons us to listen to the wonderful workings of God in our lives and in our world and to respond in faith. What was the heavenly word concerning the baby boy to Mary? What has God said? What has God really said about Jesus Christ and the extent of his reign? So where is this world really headed? Does it seem impossible to you? Well, in the words of the angel Gabriel, nothing will be impossible with God. So we are to say, let it be to us, O Lord into this word, world, according to your word. As those who have come to know Christ as Savior and King, our proclamation to all is that at Christmas, the King of Kings came into this world. His reign has already begun and it is manifested through the preaching of the gospel and the salvation of men and women who were once dead in their sin and headed for judgment, but now have been made alive and have been reconciled to God. And even now, the king sits at the right hand of his father in heaven. And according to his word, God is making his enemies his footstool. And so God commands the rulers of this world. He commands all the people, free men and slaves, young and old, men and women, to kiss the son, to give their allegiance to the king of kings, whose rule will one day swallow the whole globe. In the end, will humanism win? Will secularism win? No, Christ is king. He's the victor. He's the stone cut out, not by human hands, that will prevail over all the kingdoms and nations of this world, whose kingdom will spread over all the earth for the praise and the glory of God's holy name. And so it is with joy we read Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1 through 9. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight will be in the fear of the Lord. He shall judge not by what he sees or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. 
The cow and the bear shall graze, the young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For this indeed is my father's world. And let me not forget that, oh, though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. And this is my father's world. And the battle is not done, but Jesus will not be satisfied until earth, heaven and earth be one. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, we praise you and thank you for the coming of the King, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank